Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Uh, It's great to see everybody this morning. Uh, Good morning online, around the nation, all around the world. Thank you for joining us. We are wrapping up the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter three today for the church of Laodicea. We'll be in verses 14 through 22 in chapter 3, and what an exciting time to finish the seven letters to the seven churches. This is, there is no more important part of this book for us as the church than these seven letters, and they are the most applicable to us today as the body of Christ, as the church. These are the letters that Jesus himself penned to us as the church, and from here on out, starting next week, From chapter 4 on, we will be in the throne room of the universe and beyond. And so Jesus wrote these specifically for us today, for the church and the age in which we live. And so to open, we're just going to read through the letter to the seven or the letter to Laodicea. We'll read this and then unpack it verse by verse here. So starting in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich. And increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear with the spirit say it unto the churches. So that closes the letter, um, the letter to Laodicea. And if you remember, we've got these four levels of application. We've been going through each of the seven letters over the past seven weeks. We have these four levels of application to each single letter. There's a local church at that time that had real problems, that they really were going through what Jesus was writing about. There's an application to all churches, which is why Jesus says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, unto the churches, plural. There's a personal application. 
because it starts with he that hath an ear. So that's you, the, the call to the individual. And then there's a prophetic profile of all church history in advance. And then there's the seven elements to each of these letters. The name of the church, the title of Jesus that's used in the letter is drawn from chapter one. There's a commendation, something they're doing great. There's a concern, something they're doing wrong. There's an exhortation, something they need to improve on, or Jesus imploring them to do this. There's a promise to the overcomer. That's us. We're in 1 John 5. And then there's that closing phrase. Now, some of the letters had nothing good said about them. Some of them have nothing bad said about them. And then some of them have a mix of both. There were two letters that had nothing good said about them. And one of them is today in the church at Laodicea. So I want you to also notice in the opening of the letter here, it says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So most of the other letters start with an unto the angel in Sardis, for example, unto the angel in Philadelphia. This, this letter, the church has gotten so bad by this point. This letter is to the individuals making up the church. It's not even a call to the church. And we're going to see that because Jesus is on the outside knocking at the door. Speaking of that verse that Ryan mentioned. Okay, so the first opening verse, and unto the angel of the church of the, of the Laodiceans, right? These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So the name of the church, Laodicea, it actually comes from two roots. Uh, Leo meaning people, and Diceans meaning rulers. And so literally it's rule by the people. And it kind of reminds you of the feeling of the book of Judges, right? In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The people ruling over themselves, kicking Jesus out. And that's what we see in the letter, because Jesus is on the outside looking in, knocking, just pleading with anyone to let him come in. And that whole theme is throughout the book of Judges, and things got really, really bad. The title of Jesus, he actually uses three in this letter. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so there's three different titles of Jesus here. We're going to break them down one by one and go through these. So the Amen. Amen is literally means true, verily, or so let it be. You know, when you close a prayer with Amen, you're basically saying so let it be. It's a Hebrew word. It shows up three times in chapter 1 in Revelation, verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests, it's speaking of us, we're going to talk about that a lot next week, unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. It comes from verse 7, the very next verse, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, even so, Amen. In verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. So it means true or truth. And it's interesting it's used three times in chapter 1 because of the Trinity. Right? God is a triune being. And we talked a lot about that a few letters ago. How we are created in his image, which is why you see with all your mind, soul, and spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and spirit, because we are triune beings created in his image. But the amen, it means true or truth. And Jesus said, 
In uh, John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so Jesus is literally saying, I am the amen. And he's reiterating that here in the letter to Laodicea. Okay, the second title, the faithful and true witness. In Revelation 1, 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Okay, this is also an echo from Psalms 89. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. We're going to talk a lot about that throne coming up because it's the promise to be overcomer at the close of this letter. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. So a faithful witness. Isaiah 55 verse 4 says, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. In John 18 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, to Jesus, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And so here you have this faithful and true witness, the title of Jesus, stretching all the way back from Psalms and Isaiah, carrying through when he was on flesh in the earth, all the way to now. He's still the faithful and true witness the witness, and he stands before us, like we talked about last week, ever intercessing on our behalf before the throne room of the universe. Okay, in Revelation 19, 11, when Jesus comes back, and we'll, we'll be there with him, and the heavens will open, the heavens will open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And that's Jesus, the faithful and true witness, and in righteousness, Righteousness, he doth judge and make war. In Revelation 22, near the very close of the entire Bible, he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. In Jeremiah 42, then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. In Revelation 21, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And this was a part of the founding of New City Church. I make all things new. That new city that Jesus went to prepare for us in John 14, the new Jerusalem. Right, for these words are true and faithful. So you, just, you have this whole concept of true and faithful throughout the Bible. And, of course, Jesus is the Word of God. And so, right, these words are true and faithful. Thus, Jesus is true and faithful. Okay, the last title of Jesus in the opening to this letter, the beginning of the creation of God. There's, there's a lot of confusion on this statement, but the word beginning here in the Greek is arche. And what it literally means is that by which anything begins to be, or the origin of, or the active cause, the first place, the supreme ruler of angels and demons. So the beginning of the creation of God doesn't mean Jesus was the first in the creation of God. He literally is the source of the creation of God. So Jesus as the beginning of the creation of God. He was 
the source, the origin. And it's always used of rank and honor. And this grammatical structure in the Greek, it's only used in one other place in the entire Bible. And it's Colossians 5, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So meaning the origin of every creature. Jesus is the origin of that. And that's exactly how the Gospel of John opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so there you have the opening of the entire uh, Gospel of John is this whole concept of how Jesus was in the beginning, and He created all things, and by Him all things exist. Okay, and then it jumps into the commendation. Uh, but there is none in this letter. And so there's nothing good. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. The last church of all church history, this apostate, lukewarm, watered-down church, Jesus has nothing good to say about it at all. He jumps right into the concern. And it starts in verse 15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And you know, this is interesting because cold water is pretty refreshing, right? You go out, you work outside all day. It's a hot summer day. You come in, you get a cold glass of ice water. It's super refreshing. It, it fills your soul. You feel energized. It takes that thirst away. Hot water is, is used for lots of different things. Hot tea, uh, medicinal purposes. Hot water has a lot of purposes. But you get lukewarm and you just can't really do much with it. It, it doesn't have much purpose. You drink it, it's not enjoyable. Uh, it, you can't brew coffee or tea with it. It just, it has nothing. It just sits there, it's kind of old and stagnant and still. And this is a scathing indictment by the Lord himself, right? Jesus, the creator of the church himself is saying, you are so basically lukewarm, I can't do anything with you. You're worthless. You're not helping me at all. And as a, as a response, I have to spew you out of my mouth. And to me, it sounds a lot like frustration. You know, it sounds a lot like that he can't work with them. It sounds kind of like rejection in a lot of ways. Not Jesus rejecting them, them rejecting him. You know, because he's still standing at the door begging for any of them to come in. And so it sounds like a rejection of the church to the Lord. Okay, the next verse in verse 17, the concern continues. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Okay, does this sound like the apostate church who finds their worth in the world? You know, this is the church that's saying, Hey, I think that I'm so rich and well off. I don't really need you, Lord. We're pretty good off here. We don't need the creator of the universe to supply every one of our needs. But Jesus is saying, you're not seeing yourself for the way you really are. And the way you really are is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And it's interesting, there's five characteristics that Jesus says they are. Five always being the number of grace, and so he's still going to have grace if they just would come back. But 
they continually are rejecting him. And it sounds like a church that believes the Lord is unnecessary because of their lack of necessity. See, they, they're lacking nothing physically, thus they think the Lord is unnecessary. And some of the most difficult people to reach, honestly, around the world are those who are well off. You know, and those who really don't have need of anything. They think they've got their, their job, their wealth, their finances are in order, they've got a great house, whatever. You know, why do I need this guy, Jesus, to submit to? And, and that is how this church ends. This church, the church ends in apostasy in this way. Okay, the exhortation. This is Jesus' plea for us and for the church, this church. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And I anoint thee thine eyes with eyesol, that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So remember, Jesus described them as poor, blind, and naked. But he's offering them a solution to each of those characteristics. So he offers gold that makes them truly rich in him, the gold refined by fire. He offers clothing and a covering so they are not naked. You know, think back to Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell. Their, their, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. You know, this is kind of what Jesus is saying. But Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves. And when you read that story in Genesis 3, God provided a covering for them. You know, he prepared coats of skins for them. And in that little exchange all the way back to Genesis 3, it's the Lord teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood, they would be covered. You know, it's not by their works. It's not by them trying to cover themselves. It's by the Lord providing a covering for them that they would be saved and have fellowship with him again. So it goes all the way. This concept goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The great physician offers them a fresh anointing. For them to see their true spiritual state. Uh, what's interesting is Laodicea actually had a medical school that was had a great reputation for this eye salve that they made. And they sold it all in the region. It was one of the reasons why they were wealthy and well off. They sold it in the region and people who had vision problems would seek it to try to help them. And so Jesus is even saying directly to them. I know you have this eyesol that you think is the solution for your vision problems, but let me tell you, I've got something that will really take the scales off of your eyes so that you can really see your true state. And so this, the other thing, the white raiment, I didn't put this in the notes, but they had a special wool that they made black garments from in Laodicea. So they were very popular in the region for that. And Jesus, again, is pointing to them don't cover yourself with what your wealth is providing, this black garment. I've got a white raiment that really is the true covering that you need. And so, it's again, it's, it goes back to him trying to meet physically what they're doing and for him to turn it upside down and say, you're going down the wrong path. This whole concept of gold tried in fire comes from Psalms 19. It's all over the Bible, but this is one of my favorite verses on it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And so this whole concept in each of those, you could spend an entire lesson on each of these. The law, the testimony, the statutes, uh, the fear, all of those are different. But the point being, the word of the Lord is the true goal that he's trying to get them converted to. Okay, the next verse in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, Jesus, always after he was resurrected, shows up eating. It's really funny. When you go through the New Testament, anytime he shows up after his resurrection, he's eating. He's preparing the fish on the, on the shore. He shows up in the room. He's always breaking bread with people. And that's, that's what his plea is here for the people. And the verse, this verse is used all around the world as an altar call. Right? It's a very famous verse for people... When, when they're trying to make an altar call, they'll use this verse. And it's a great verse for that. But don't miss that this is a further indictment on the church. You know, where is Jesus? He's on the outside. He's knocking, pleading, open the door. Let me come in. The call, again, is to the individual. And again, it's how the letter started. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. A plural a plural announcement to the people of that church. And it's a call to them. It's not a call to the church. I mean, Jesus basically is saying, the church has finally rejected me. I have nothing to do but to call out to the individual. Okay, the promise to the overcomer in the closing phrase, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so there's a difference. We're going to break this down a little bit. There's a difference between the Father's throne and Jesus' throne. A big difference. And the Father's throne is in heaven. Psalms 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. And that's just one verse. You can track this down throughout the entire Bible. But the Father's throne is in heaven. Remember when Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He didn't sit on his throne yet. Jesus doesn't have his throne yet. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But Jesus' throne is an earthly throne. It's a throne for the kingdom. It's a ruling throne to be sat in Jerusalem. And it's all over the Bible. And so it starts all the way back in 2 Samuel. This promise of Jesus' throne is established in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel verse 16, same chapter, In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Before thee thy throne shall be established forever. Now this is a promise that God makes David, that he's basically he brings down through the generations to Jesus. 
Okay, and it's announced, it's confirmed all through the Bible, Second Chronicles 6, chapter 7. You know, it's reaffirmed continuously throughout the Old Testament. There's too many verses to list, but when you get to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel makes this announcement to Mary. He shall be great, speaking of Jesus, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Now, this is a throne. It's a ruling throne. It didn't exist when Jesus walked on the earth. Rome ruled the world. David's throne over Israel was not there. And so this has not been fulfilled yet. This is what gets fulfilled in the millennium for that thousand-year reign. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David, this ruling throne from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And so when we go up in the rapture, we're going to start there next week to start chapter 4. You have the vision of the throne room of the universe. Then what starts the tribulation is the Antichrist affirming a covenant with Israel from Daniel. He affirm a covenant that starts the seven-year period that we call the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. There's a lot of names for it throughout the Bible. But the end of that seven-year period... When Jesus comes back and we are with him in Revelation 19, he takes 75 days from the book of Daniel. There's a 75-day period where he starts to set up the kingdom. And that's where he gets the throne, the throne of David, the throne that God's promised him. And so could Jesus' throne be a special gift being held by Ethiopia right now? And this is interesting. Uh, we're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail for just a minute, so bear with me. But I think you'll find this fruitful. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was this uh, gopher wood. It was overlaid with gold. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Is it out there? Is it still? People try to find it. Pop culture makes movies about trying to find it. You know, Indiana Jones. But I think what a lot of us miss is the actual mercy seat that was the lid. It was made out of solid gold. It wasn't, it wasn't wood overlaid with gold. So it wouldn't rot away over time. And it's always described separately. Uh, the mercy seat was made of this pure gold, it, and it made it a more enduring relic. And all of this, when God gives it to Moses, was a copy of the heavenly reality, which had been shown to Moses. So that's in Hebrews 8.5. Where, he, where everything he did was a blueprint of the heavenly reality. The Holy of Holies was described as the location of the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 1 Chronicles 28. God himself is described as he that dwelleth above the cherubim of the mercy seat. That's Nexus 25, number 7, 1 Samuel 4, 2 Samuel 6. It goes on and on and on. But when you do some research in this, the Ethiopians today believe they have something to deliver to Jesus when he rules on Mount Zion. And you see this concept in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Zephaniah chapter 3. This is uh, the Lord speaking of the Ethiopians in the millennium. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplements, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. Okay, this word bring in the Hebrew is yabal. And it means to bear or carry as in a royal procession. So think of it as a royal procession coming up from Ethiopia as Jesus is setting up the millennium. 
The word offering is uh, minka. It means a gift, a tribute, or a present. So this royal procession bringing a tribute to Jesus. That's exactly what's prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 3. So this apparently is the presentation by the Ethiopians which receives such special emphasis in Isaiah 18. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of the people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. A nation meted out and trodden underfoot. You know, if, you, if you do some history on the Ethiopians, they were great, a great, great kingdom way back before Egypt. You know, you do some history on that. In fact, there's some historical precedence that Moses led some battles for Egypt against them. It's not chronicled in the Bible, but it's just interesting to think about. They were terrible from their beginning. Okay, a nation meted out and trod underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. Okay, Psalm 72, verses 9 and 10. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. And this is all speaking, it's foreshadowing the millennium. When Jesus sets up and the nations bring gifts to him. Right. Okay, Ethiopia has a special gift for the king. And it all gives a revealing perspective on Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian treasurer in Acts chapter 8. So there's this major revival in Samaria going on. And Philip is sent to the desert. And this is in Acts 8 verses 26 through 30. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip saying, Arise! And go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So you get the picture. You have the treasurer of Ethiopia. Candace is the queen. The eunuch, who has authority over all the treasure of Ethiopia, is coming to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. Okay? To worship Jesus. And was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. So he gets to Jerusalem and finds out, Jesus has died. What did we miss? I'm supposed to bring this gift for him, and I'm showing up, and he's dead. What is going on? So he's searching the scriptures in the, in the book of Isaiah, trying to figure out, what did I miss? Okay, he's reading the Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto him, Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? So basically Philip's saying, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the, and the treasurer says, No, I don't actually. <laughs> in, the, in the next verse, he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. And he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So opened he not his mouth. Remember when, when Pilate and the, the council before Jesus said, are you not going to speak a word? And he, he kept silent. He could have rebuked them and just had it over with. But he had to fulfill the book of Isaiah. So opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? 
for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. And so Philip interprets this scripture for him as the Messiah, as prophesying that the Messiah had to come first to die. Then he will come to rule and reign. And see, they just missed it. This treasure in, in Ethiopia, much like the Jewish people, totally missed it. They just missed that Jesus had to die first. Then Philip opened his mouth and began in the same scripture and proceeded unto him, preached unto him, Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. That's one of seven spots in the Bible where a rapture event happens. Where in the Greek word is harpazo, Philip was snatched away by force after that moment. And we're going we're to do a deep dive study on that to start chapter 4 next week. But what, what you see, it, it adds light to this whole exchange between Philip and the Ethiopian treasurer. Why was he bringing a gift to the Messiah to begin with? You know, you miss that unless you have this background through the Old Testament of the Ethiopians have a gift to offer Jesus when he rules on Mount Zion. When he sets up the kingdom, they have a gift, a special gift in their, in their protection right now to bring to him. And it's interesting, you can look this up online, but when I was studying this, I have a whole series or a whole lesson just on this concept alone. But when I was doing some research on this, it's interesting, the Ethiopians on their currency have the line of the tribe of Judah. You know, they, they have a deeply rooted faith in the Messiah, which is really cool. Really, really cool. Uh, in fact, the church in Axiom, if you look this up, you see all these guys in white garbs. They're, they're guarding whatever this treasure is they believe they have. And I just think it's so fascinating that the treasurer was trying to visit Jerusalem, deliver the gift, only to find out, wait, Hold on, Jesus had to die first? I didn't realize that. Okay, I, didn't, I did not catch that in Scripture. And so he came to worship Messiah, but learned that he had to be killed. And Philip shows him that this was all a fulfillment of prophecy. But the Messiah was destined to return in the future. And so, you can go to the next slide, Brian. Uh, the application, you know, in that, in that whole exchange, you can kind of picture the treasurer going back to Ethiopia and just saying, hey, it's not time yet. It's not time for Jesus to rule on Mount Zion. So that's, that is what is, is the promise to be overcomer for us out of this word, out of the Bible, out of the church of Laodicea, to sit with Jesus on his throne, which he will receive when he sets up the millennium. Okay, the application. You know, much wealth flowed through Laodicea. As it said at the junction of roads leading from Ephesus and Smyrna, there were caravans historically even as far east as those by the China Sea that would travel through Laodicea. And in 62 AD, it was destroyed by a huge earthquake. And it was actually rebuilt by the wealthy citizens. They didn't seek any aid from Rome. They did it on their own accord, you know, thinking they are rich and in need of nothing. So it's even in the local application, that concept is coming through. You could not defend Laodicea from military conflict. 
historically there was no defensible side of the city. And so its position was always one of compromise throughout history. It always compromised with whoever the ruling party was so that it didn't have to go to war. Instead, if it would just compromise and go along with whatever they're saying, they found themselves to be safe. And so it's just interesting, even in that concept, it's speaking to the church today. There was an aqueduct that ran through the city, and it was where a fresh cold river, cold water river and a hot spring converged. And so literally the water that ran through the city was lukewarm. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It just was literally a lukewarm place. And so the personal application, as we finish up the seven letters, Ephesus was ne neglecting priorities. Remember, they lost their first love. Smyrna, the persecuted church, it's a call for us to withstand satanic opposition. Pergamus was avoiding spiritual compromising. That's the church that married the world. After they married the world, they let that Jezebel spirit rise up in Thyatira. So don't let evil take root. Sardis was to remain faithful, ever watching for Jesus. That was went into the denominational reformed church period. Philadelphia is the open door for missionary outreach. And Laodicea finally avoiding prosperous compromise. Okay, all churches. Some of these overlap a little bit, but the application to all churches, Ephesus is prioritizing devotion, not just doctrine. So for our church not to lose our first love. Smyrna, enduring that persecution that will come upon the church at some point. You know, it's hard for us to see it as we live right here in Oklahoma City, and this is a welcome gathering. But let me just tell you, for the last part of the 2,000 years, for most of the world, most of the body of Christ has had to endure that very thing, persecution. Meeting in secret under the threat of death. You know, not being able to carry this around openly. And at some point, that's going to escalate. Who knows how much the Lord will let us see. But at some point, that will escalate where this is no longer welcomed. Even here in Oklahoma, it will happen at some point. It's just a matter of whether we are here or not. So Thyatira to root out all pagan practices. I'm sorry, Pergamus was purifying their ambassadorship. Then Thyatira is to root out that Jezebel spirit, root out those pagan practices. Sardis to remain diligent in teaching God's word and watchfulness. Philadelphia is that open gateway for the gospel. Remember, Philadelphia set that junction meeting west and east, and so that open gateway for missionary outreach. And Laodicea is being on fire for the Lord and not lukewarm and not relying on worldly wealth for our sustenance as the church. Okay, so to wrap up the seven letters of the seven churches, again, this is the most important part of the entire book of Revelation for us. It's Jesus penned these specifically for us. Each of them have that phrase, he that hath an ear. Okay, you can find that one other place in the Bible, and it connects to Matthew 13 in the seven kingdom parables that Jesus wrote or talks about, okay? So you can actually line up the seven kingdom parables with the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, you start out, Jesus starts out with a sower in the four soils. Well, that's the apostolic church. That's the church of Ephesus, the church from Acts 2 that started to spread the word. Right, spreading the gospel. Then Smyrna lines up with the tares and the wheat. 
uh, terrorists start to rise up and, and take away that wheat, persecute that wheat. Then Jesus goes into Pergamos, the mustard seed. Remember, the church grows to a point that the birds of the air, the ministers of Satan from Matthew 13, lodge in its branches. And Pergamos was the church with the perverted or uh, fake marriage. It's where the church that married the world. And so it lines up with the mustard seed. Thyatira. Remember, Thyatira was all about that Jezebel spirit. And that parable from Jesus is about the woman and the leaven. The woman who, who gets the three um, meals, the three leaven meals, and puts the leaven in, and, and it corrupts, basically. Uh, Sardis, the treasure in the field, so this denominational reformed church, the treasure in the field where Jesus went to buy the field, to get everything he had, to buy what was buried in the field. In Philadelphia, that missionary church, that outreach, is the pearl of great price because Jesus when he speaks of the pearl, you know, it's, it's an unkosher item. Uh, Jews only traded in it because it was prosperous. But when you go back to the Old Testament, oysters and, and clams and things, that sea fish, that seafood, it was unclean to them. And a pearl is interesting because it grows through an irritation. And it becomes an item of adornment. It's taken from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. And so it's a perfect idiom of the church. You know, we grow out of persecution, out of struggles, and at some point we'll be removed from our place to become an item of adornment. So it's a perfect analogy of the church. And then finally, the last parable Jesus uses is the dragnet. It's the end of all age when the harvest has come in and, and Jesus drags up all the church, right? Separates out those that are really his and those that are not. And so I, I would encourage you to... Do a, a deep study a lot on your own. Just read through it. See, uh, see if it connects for you. Uh, I found it very fascinating, especially when Jesus tries to get us to tie that word, he that happened here. Okay. They also lay out, we talked about this a lot, but the seven letters lay out all of church history in advance. They profile periods throughout church history for the better part of the last 2,000 years. And we only know that today by being able to look back. They would have known that in the Apostolic Church after Acts 2. They would not have known that in 300 AD, 500 AD, 800 AD. It's only today in the, in the time and age in which we live that you can look back and see this prophetic profile that Jesus wrote down. Ephesus being that Apostolic Church from Acts 2. Smyrna, the persecuted church that came under immense persecution from Rome. And then it just continued to grow, and so Satan decided, all right, well, I'll just have to marry the church, get the church to marry the world, and, and then I'll get them to back off. And that's exactly what happened. The church marries the world, and through that marriage, when it was legalized with uh, Rome, and then it moved to Rome, the medieval church rose up that, that Jezebel spirit. And if you study history at all, you know about the Inquisition, how wretched it was. It was exactly what Jezebel did to Ahab. And then out of that came the denominational Reformed Church, and then that led to the Missionary Church, and now again we are in the lukewarm apostate church. So, to close up, to wrap up the seven letters of seven churches, if you do not know Jesus and want to make sure you get to sit with him on his throne in the millennium, it's very simple. It's a very simple thing. Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus 
and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that it's as simple as it can be. It's not about what you do. It's, you can't add anything to it. You had nothing to do with it. So it's not about your works. It's about the finished work that Jesus made on the cross. So you can make sure your new name is secured and you have a seat with Jesus in the kingdom. And if you're watching online and you haven't done this yet, please go wherever you are right now and get on your knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. He wants to welcome you to your forever place. And you can take your place in the bride of Christ right now without delaying. Because we're going home soon. Now Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so Jesus wants you in his kingdom forever. Forever. And so with that, we'll close in prayer. If you have any prayer requests or salvation questions, our emails there on the screen. Reach out to us if you've got questions here in the church. If you need something, please come and see us afterwards. So thank you guys. We'll wrap up in prayer here. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for the seven letters to the seven churches. Thank you for the deep application to us today. Thank you, God, that we can rest assured that you have completed everything we need to have fellowship with you. And Lord, if there are any within the sound of our voice here at New City Church that do not know you, Jesus, we, we pray and we plead on their behalf that, God, your will is that all should come to know you. It's very clear. That's your will, Father. In 1 John 5, you say that anything we pray according to your will, you will hear us from heaven. And so, Lord, we are just praying that you would send forth your spirit, that you would pull them, you can save them from the uttermost, God. You can save them and welcome them into a forever family. So, Lord, thank you again for the study. We pray that you be with us as we leave this place and help us to have ears to hear exactly what you would say to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen.